Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. On today's podcast, we welcome visiting scholar Abdu Murray to the program. Abdu is president of Embrace the Truth, a ministry dedicated to bringing the truth of the gospel to Muslims. First of all, welcome Abdu to uh, the podcast. Hey, Joe, it's great to be with you. And Ken, thanks for having me on. It's just truly a blessing. Uh, Ken, tell us uh, again, for people who need a refresher, about the Visiting Scholar program and what brings Abdu to the studio today. Yeah, I think one of the uh, uh, really great ideas that RTB has followed up on is building a scholar community. And it's great to have visiting scholars because... uh, not only do we uh, benefit from hearing different perspectives and things like that, but I think we offer a lot to people who can come in. So Abdu is here, I think, for a week, yep. approximately a week. So I knew I wanted to interview him here on Clear Thinking. Terrific. Uh, I have a, a basic question, Ken. I know you're going to go down this road. Abdu, for those of us who are like me and are wondering just how many practicing or even non-practicing Muslims are there in the U.S.? And how many uh, possible encounters do you have? And can we expect to have as lay people with the Muslims in our community and just anywhere? Yeah, that's a great question, Joe. Um, uh, so the numbers are always dependent on who you ask at the time. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you were to ask the number of Muslims worldwide, you'd get the number from 2 billion to 1 billion, which is a huge difference, right? I mean, you're talking... Uh, 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 doubling the number depending on who you talk to. And sometimes there's political reasons to say that, you know, Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world, which is a statement people make. I don't know if it's actually true, uh, but people make it all the time because of the numbers and part of its birth rates and and uh, immigration and these kind of things. Um, whether it's because of conversions is another issue, uh, but Islam is a very missionary, um, uh, lack of a better word, evangelistic uh, uh, or uh, religion, which seeks to win converts. Um, having said that, in the U.S., um, there's probably, and it depends on, again, who you ask, you're talking a population um, that, uh, depending on the location, you can have tons of them. Like Dearborn, the, uh, a, a city near where I live, um, the population is extremely high of Muslims. In fact, there's one city near us where the city council is entirely Muslims. Wow. Um, so their influence is growing all around the world. Uh, here in Southern California, there's a lot. There's Muslims from all different backgrounds. So there's millions. Let's put it this way. Um, whether or not the number is 10 or 20 or 30, it's probably not 30 because that would be 10% of the population of the U.S. And it's certainly not that. But there are millions of Muslims here. Um, and uh, like all people of different faiths, they have um, different levels of devotion. Um, Muslims tend to be the kind of people who are, uh, whether they practice or not, um, they tend to defend it because being uh, religious identity in the Middle East and in the East is a bigger part of life than it is here in the West. Um, I once heard Sam Solomon, who's a former Muslim himself, describe it this way, is that if you were to take a box and if the box represented life in the U.S., uh, you put a dot in the middle and that's religious expression or religious identity. It's a very small part of who we are. In the East, it's the opposite. The dot represents the individual self, and mm. the box that surrounds it represents uh, religious identity. Mm. It's everything that it per- 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 uh, permeates culture. 
And that is no less true of either immigrants to the U.S. or first, second, even third generation born Muslims in the U.S. Religious expression is still a huge part of it. So how I put it is, and this is my lawyer hat talking, is that if someone were a Muslim and there was no, they couldn't be convicted of it if it were a crime because there's no evidence of it in their life, they would still defend Islam in a verbal death match with you because it's about identity, not about practice um, alone. Interesting. So um, you can, if you're serious about sharing your faith with people um, and you are in any way, shape or form near a populated center of the United States, you're going to run into Muslims. I mean, I remember walking off the stage in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and I walked into a bunch of Muslims there. Wow. Um, oh, yeah. Um, uh, like, I was like, really? What, what are you guys doing here? Because we tend not to go uh, to rural areas, uh, <laughs> but they were there. Um, uh, there's a, a program in Canada called Little Mosque on the Prairie. And there are Muslims. <laughs> I was in Alberta in the middle of nowhere, and there were Muslims there. Wow. Um, so uh, if you are looking for opportunities to reach out to your Muslim friends, you don't need to look too hard. Yeah. Yeah. I understand, uh, you know, a lot of times Americans have uh, faulty views of Islam. Mm -hmm. None of the largest Islamic populations worldwide are in the Middle East. It's right. South Asia, mm -hmm. Indonesia, uh, Africa. Pakistan, yep. Africa, India, Africa. Yep. I want you to take a few minutes, Abdul, and you've you went through an amazing mm -hmm. process to move from being a Muslim to becoming a Christian. Mm -hmm to becoming a Christian apologist who reaches out to Muslims. Mm -hmm. Take a few minutes and tell our audience, what were the what were the high points that led you through this mm -hmm. uh, transformation? Yeah, um, thanks for asking. It's um, uh, so essentially I was I was raised in the, in the States and I thought Islam was the cat's whiskers, man. People should believe it. And I did not uh, subscribe to anything like moral relativism or, or, mm -hmm. or epistemological relativism or anything like that. It's like, if it's true for me, it's actually true. And if it's, there's no such thing as true for you, it's just mm -hmm. true. So I thought Islam was true. And therefore, everything else that was contradictory to Islam was therefore false. So the area I grew up in was um, not very religiously diverse. Um, we were sort of the dollop of olive oil in the pot of rice uh, in the area. Uh, I grew up in Indian families and some some Arabs in, in the area, not too many, but uh, eventually became very diverse. You go now, and it's it's terrific for the uh, for the menu choices. Um, it's fantastic and the cultural experiences. But I would ask Christians because they were low hanging fruit. You know, they the in the in the eighties and the nineties, it was fashionable to say you were still a Christian even if you didn't really mean it. And it's no longer fashionable anymore, but in yeah. fact, then it was. Uh, so I'd ask Christians a question: uh, Why are you a Christian? And they would often respond with, "Well, I don't know. I know we go to the you know Presbyterian Church or the Methodist Church. You pick your denomination. We go there on Christmas and Easter. So I guess I'm a Methodist." And they would answer almost like a question. I'm like, "Are, are you sure you even know?" Um, <laughs> and I'd say, "So tradition is your reason. Tradition is the reason you believe something. Um, you're trusting your eternal soul, your eternal destiny, to a worldview that somebody else has thought through." Um, well, I've thought it through for you, and here's 10 reasons why you're wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and um, over the course of time, there were some Christians who actually knew what they were talking about and would respond. Um, but a big, a big part of my objection to the Christian faith was central doctrines of the Christian faith, I thought, insulted God's greatness. You know, you have this phrase in, uh, in Islam, it's actually got a name. It's such an important uh, phrase in Islam that it, it's been given a name. It's called takbir. Takbir is the phrase, Allahu Akbar. 
And, and everyone's heard this phrase, of course. And usually when you hear it, something terrible happens. But the reality is most Muslims say this phrase, Allahu Akbar, as a praise and a prayer um, in common everyday life. It literally means God is greater. So I thought the Trinity, the incarnation, the, and the cross were insults to God's greatness. So I made it my mission to stand against these things. Um, there were people who knew what they were talking about. And then when I started to read the Quran, uh, a book I've been reading for years, with a little bit of a different light, uh, a, a, a more of a critical eye, like I want to know if something's true, not just because I was supposed to believe it. Because I had been telling Christians, tradition's not a good enough reason to believe something. Um, it's not an insufficient reason. It's not a, it's not a, sorry, it's not a bad reason to have in your quiver, but it can't be the only reason. Uh, well, I was reading the Bible to debunk it, and John the Baptist's words from Luke chapter 3, verse 7 and following jumped out at me. When he says to those who were coming to him, he said, um, do not even think to say to yourself that you have Abraham as your father, as if that would save them from, from judgment. For I tell you, God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. Mm. In other words, what John the Baptist is saying is that tradition doesn't save you. That's what I was saying. And suddenly it was occurred to me, no Christian had ever asked me, well, why are you a Muslim then? It was John the Baptist who had asked me that question, essentially, um, in, a, in, a, in a book that I thought was corrupted and changed and couldn't be trusted. But here we are in a situation where I'm not believing this book um, uh, as a reliable source of truth. And I want to say it's God's pulling on me and the Holy Spirit getting me to start to recognize you believe something because of tradition. You're being a bit of a hypocrite. Maybe you should believe it because it's true. That started me on the journey of a little more of an objective look. Now, it wasn't totally objective. I still thought Islam would win the day, and I really wanted it to. Uh, so it took nine years. But over the course of time, I began to see, as I was reading the Quran, the way the Quran itself actually speaks of the Bible in very positive terms. Mm -hmm. uh, not just like, hey, this is a good book that you might want to consider reading. It was, the truth is in here. Um, and I'm like, well, wait a minute, I thought it was changed. And so it took me on a historical journey to find out if the Bible had been changed, which it hadn't. Um, and then a, a, a historical journey into whether or not Jesus actually said the things he said about himself in terms of his claims of divinity. How could that be possible? And then the crucifixion and resurrection. Mm -hmm. In the end, the irony of it all was that I had rejected the Christian faith because I thought that the Trinity, Incarnation, and Cross insulted God's greatness. And I came to understand that those are the very ideas that demonstrate his greatness. Wow. Um, and over the course of nine years, you know, I found enough answers, guys, I found enough answers to become a Christian within two years. But I wrestled with the answers for seven more years because, and this is why the ministry is called what it's called. The answers are easy to find. They're hard to embrace. Mm -hmm. And so our ministry, Embrace the Truth, is all about, whether it's Muslims or anybody, and I have a broader audience than just Muslims, it's skeptics, it's Hindus, Buddhists, you know, you name it. Yeah. Um, I think there's a universal experience where people have, you ask them to change their worldview, and it's like trying to pry open a clenched fist. It's very painful for the person who's trying to open it up and the person who's clenching it. Um, but um, once they open it up and they might be open to the possibility of something changing, that's when the truth can be embraced. So it's not just giving them the facts and giving them the arguments. It's doing what Blaise Pascal said, you know, make people wish it were true wow. and then show them that it is. And I thank God that there were wonderful people 
who helped me to wish it were true. And she'll be that it is. And just a, a slight aside, uh, an RTB plug here. There was two Baptist guys who came to the apartment I was living at at University of Michigan who helped me to start to see some of this stuff. And they brought over a VHS tape of Hugh Ross talking about Genesis. Um, that's how long ago this was. And I had asked them a question about, well, can you explain how it is that God can create plants without the sun? Um, and your book is corrupted. Unless it's already wrong. And they, they said, well, we, I don't know the answer. And they went and they got a VHS tape of Hugh. <laughs> and so Hugh was part of my journey. That's great. Yeah. I, uh, Abdu, I talk with Muslims recently. Well, it's it's been a year or so. Yeah. I had a discussion with an imam, and we were talking about the Trinity, mm -hmm. comparing our triune view of God to Allah. One of the questions I asked the imam is, I said, look, if, if you're a Muslim, you believe in a single solitary God, mm -hmm. single person. Mm -hmm. I said, how, who did Allah love? an eternity mm -hmm. before he created angels and mm -hmm. men and bringing them back to the idea that the Bible says that God is love mm -hmm. and that the Trinity allows the father is the lover, the son, the beloved, mm -hmm. the spirit that extends between them. Mm -hmm. um, that led to kind of a, uh, I mean, I've been talking to people in religions for 45 years, yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses, mm -hmm. Mormons, mm -hmm. Hindus, Buddhists, when I asked that question with uh, Muslims and with Jehovah's Witnesses, I I, I see them blink. I yeah. see them stop. Mm -hmm. What do you, I mean, I'm really going back to Augustine. Augustine yeah. presented this idea that God is analogous to a loving family. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that presentation and discussion? What what would go on in the mind of a Muslim yeah. hearing that? So I, I I wrote a whole chat a whole chapter on this in in my book Grand Central Question wow. about the Trinity and it, almost the exact same argument you had you had mentioned you know I think it was William Hasker who had posed the argument of Christian theism being incoherent because if God is loving then love always requires an object and if God is perfect he can't be loving because love needs to be satisfied and the God who's not satisfied can't be perfect mm -hmm. and so Christian theism is no makes no sense and then someone else responded and said well the Trinity actually solves the problem for you. Um, and I realized this has universal application. This is not yeah. just for Muslims. Um, this is something that speaks to the beauty and coherence of Christian doctrine. Uh, so um, I think this is a wonderful, you know, I didn't come to this conclusion. I didn't realize the Trinitarian, the beauty of the Trinitarian dance, as it were, um, until after I became a believer. I sort of accepted the Trinity uh, on faith and said, okay, I don't get it. I'm not even close, uh, but um, Jesus the, the Bible teaches it. Jesus affirms um, a relationship between him and the Father and the Spirit. And he says he's God. He says the Spirit's God. And he says the Father is God. And they're all one. So he says it, and he rose from the dead. And I should believe the guy who rises from the dead. He tends to have credibility a little bit more than the, the average guy. But later on, I realized the, 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 the profound beauty of this thing. Yeah. So I'll tell you the reception of this. Um, I've had a couple of people who have said, well, you know, uh, relate, relationality and love aren't necessary characteristics of God. They're contingent. I'm like, uh, I don't think they are, especially from a Muslim perspective, because you have the 99 beautiful names of God in Islam. Yeah. And amongst those names is Al-Wadud, Al-Wadud, or uh, Ar-Rahman, which is the beneficent or the gracious, and Ar-Rahim, which is the merciful. These are all relational things. Yeah. So the 99 names of God actually describe a God in, 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 in himself through and through. So he's intensely relational. 
So when I ask the question, who is God relating to when nothing else but him exists? Mm -hmm. And if he needs to create something, then it creates a God who, who is in fact flawed or not flawed, but can't be perfect because yeah. he has incomplete, un yeah. incomplete he's an unfulfilled need. Um, and uh, so I uh, had done a dialogue at, at McGill University um, in Montreal. Uh, which the McGill people would say is the the Harvard of of Canada. I don't know if University of Toronto would agree with that, but the <laughs> McGill folk, folks certainly say it. It's a great university. We did a dialogue with a Muslim on who is God, and it was a packed audience. And I had given a Trinitarian, based on Augustine, the Trinitarian idea, also an Anselmian, greatest yeah. possible being kind of a thing. Yeah. And um, I talked about the Trinity in this way and how it's not a problem, it's a solution um, to uh, a theological problem. And Muslims had lined up during the Q&A, and one of the first questions came from a Muslim guy. And he said, and it wasn't because I presented so wonderfully, it was just because the truth was so rung so true to him. He said, look, he said, can you give, you gave a top down of the Trinity, how about a bottom up, like humanity to God kind of thing? And I responded to his question. And then he said, this idea that God is a being in community and that God is love these are his words, is the most thing I've ever heard. Wow. Um, I have seen Muslims react to the Trinity in such positive ways. This is one of these unfortunate things of Christendom where we run away from this idea because we don't know how to describe it, let alone defend it. Yeah. But when you delve into it, I'll give you another example. Again, in Toronto, in Canada, for whatever reason, this was at University of Toronto, I was doing a dialogue with a guy um, who is a, he's a former Hindu who became a Shia Muslim. So it's going to be a very interesting conversation because yeah. I used to be a Shia Muslim and now I'm a Christian. So um, here you go from a polytheist who's now a Unitarian and you have me, a former Unitarian, who's now a Trinitarian. It's like the start of a big joke. Um, <laughs> oh, walking into a bar. Yeah, exactly. Well, one of us ducked. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, the Trinity came up and I've been wrestling, not wrestling with, but thinking through some ideas about why the Trinity is so foundational to me is the Trinity actually makes sense of almost every other idea in Chris, in Christianity in terms of the, 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 in, the, the atonement and all this, because a common Muslim objection is if Jesus is God and Jesus dies on the cross to pay our debt, then all he did was move money from his right pocket to his left. Mm. It's just a fiction. Um, it, no real transaction has occurred. He paid no debt to anybody because it's a debt owed to himself that he himself pays to himself. It doesn't make any sense. And um, me and this guy were going back and forth. It's like a tremendous guy, by the way, um, on some of this stuff. And it came up from the audience. And I had said, um, well, if you have a, if you understand the Trinity properly, then you understand a God who is one in his nature and three in his persons, and the persons are not each other. So when the son pays the debt to the father on our behalf, a distinct personhood of the of the Godhead pays an actual debt to another distinct person. So he's not moving money from his right to his left. He is paying a debt to a distinct person. And the Holy Spirit, as another person of the Trinity, convicts us of our sins, convinces us of our sins, and then gets us to see this truth. And so the Trinity plays a role, and I could go on more, but in the very core idea of the atonement itself, if God is not triune, I think the, the atonement is a fiction. But if God is triune, then the, the atonement makes sense. And the reaction was surprising 
because I think they had finally seen this stuff is not just random ideas. These people mm-hmm. popped off because they couldn't understand the data in the New Testament. Yeah. They saw the data and then they saw the coherence of the data. And so I think Christian theology is such a beautiful thing because it all fits together from from, from God's nature to God's work and who the son actually is and who the spirit really is. I think when Muslims and anybody really, but when Muslims begin to see this is not just a concoction of random ideas about God, but they all make sense in light of each other, they're surprised by it because they're told Christianity is right-hearted and wrong-headed. Mm. But the reality is both. Yeah. When I've talked with Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, again, I've been talking with witnesses for 40 years, and the mm-hmm. typical dialogue is the Bible teaches the Trinity. They say, no, it doesn't. I say, yeah. yes, it does. But it goes back and forth. Yeah. So one day I, I just decided it was a it was a lady, and I said, look, um, you know, the witnesses, you believe that Jehovah is the one God. Mm-hmm. Jesus is, a, is like the Father, but not fully mm-hmm. equal to the Father. So I said, in eternity, before God creates, before he creates the Son, before he creates the universe— who does he love? Mm-hmm. And I really tried to pitch it in terms of mm-hmm. this loving idea. I said, when you uh, when you go door to door, I said, do you tell people that Jehovah loves them? And I said, do you know that Jehovah loves you? And how how do you get a God who doesn't have to create to, to fulfill himself? Yeah. And I've seen him blink. And I mean, so often you get the kind of robotic response back and forth. Yeah. But we live in a world where people are hurting, they're lonely. We want this idea that mm-hmm. God could love me. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm glad you appreciate that argument yeah, because it, so. it's it's been very helpful to me. Yeah. Well, let's uh let's touch on another element. Um Islam, of course, and this is kind of a provocative view. I wonder what you think of it. Oh boy. <laughs> when I when I talk with Mormons, mm-hmm. I say, look, I'm going to describe a religion to you, and I want you to tell me what religion I'm talking about. So I I start describing Islam, mm-hmm. and I say, now, what religion was I talking about? They'll say, oh, you're talking about the Latter-day Saints. And I say, no, I was actually talking about Islam, yeah. that the Bible has been corrupted, that a prophet has to come. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you go about uh, responding to that issue mm-hmm. that— Scripture is corrupted. It's been mistranslated. We need a new book. Yeah. How do you, how do you go about that? A couple of a couple of things spring to mind, but it's interesting too, by the way, as an aside. And you, I'm sure you're familiar with it. The number of parallels that are a little bit eerie. Joseph Smith receives his message in a cave, and he's through, through a thing that only he can interpret and only mm-hmm. he sees. And it's from tablets. And in Islam, you have Muhammad in a cave being visited by an angel, and only he's the one who hears it and can understand it. And the the revelation comes from what's called Umm al-Kitab, which means the mother of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same kind of thing. And so there are some relatively eerie similarities. Now, I don't want to engage in parallelomania because if yeah. you do that, yeah. you can do a lot of damage uh, to things that are not really, they're parallels, but they're only interesting, as it yeah. were. But so here's how I go about it. Uh, one is um, a couple of things that, 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 that strike me. One is the the Quranic data, what the what the Quran actually says about the Bible. So the Quran in numerous places says, and the most stark of which um, are in the uh, fifth chapter of the Quran. It's called Al Maida. Al Maida means the table spread, which refers to the, the Last Supper, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a phrase, there's a a couple of lines in verses forty six and forty seven of the fifth chapter of the Quran. One of them says, <clears throat> "Let the people of the gospel 
meaning Christians, judge. It's a present tense word. In Arabic, it's well yahkum. Yahkum is a present tense imperative, judged by what God has revealed in the gospel. And then it says, and those who do not judge what God has revealed, those are among the evildoers or the transgressors, depending on the, on the translation. So if you have a present tense verb in the Quran where it's telling Christians to judge by what God has revealed in the gospel, unless they be evildoers, how could they possibly have judged by a book that is so horribly corrupted that we needed to fix it? Mm. Same chapter, verse 68. It refers to Christians and Jews. Uh, it calls them Ahl al-Kitab, which is the people of the book, meaning Christians and Jews. It says, Lestum ala shay'an. Um, you have no foundation, or you stand on nothing. Hatta yuqimu, present tense plural imperative, until you observe, and it mentions the Torah, the gospel, and all the revelations that have come to you from your Lord. So how could they possibly have a foundation they can rest upon in the present tense if the Bible, Torah, and gospel have been corrupted? The Quran does not allow for this. The Quran says in two other places that God's words cannot be changed. Um, now, there is some words in the Quran that suggest that the context or the meanings have been altered by Christians and Jews who wanted to oppose Muhammad's message, but nowhere do you find the text actually being argued to be changed. Mm -hmm. A great scholar named Gordon Nickel, um, or Nickel, kind of depends on who you ask how to pronounce his name, he wrote a, a, um, a PhD dissertation on earliest commentating, commentators on the Quran understanding these verses, and they all basically say the, the Bible has not been changed. It's the meanings that have been changed. So you have no Quranic data, really, to, to back up um, the idea that the Bible has been changed. So why do Muslims argue it? Well, because the Bible and the Quran are inconsistent with each other. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> it was only in, in the 9th and 10th centuries when you had Arabic Bibles being, trend, be, uh, be, uh, being available where Muslims started to read the, the, the Bible in Arabic and they realized, well, these things are actually textually different. We assumed that it was just interpretation differences, not actual text. And so the doctrine of corruption started to um, <clears throat> take become popular yeah. because it couldn't be the Quran that's been corrupted. It's got to be the Bible. Um, so one, you find no data, Quranic data. Two, you find no historical data for the corruption of scripture in such a way that you have these very serious differences. But three, there's a philosophical issue and a theological issue. And this is the one that I wrestled with the most. And when I bring this to Muslims, this is the one that they wrestle with the most. So here's my essentially 45 second argument yeah. for why as a Muslim, you cannot believe the Bible has been changed. Um, a Muslim believes that God is great. He's the greatest possible being. And that if you believe that God is morally and in power in all other ways, the greatest possible being, well, then you must believe that he is both all powerful and trustworthy. If you believe he's not all powerful, well, then you're not really a Muslim anymore. And you're more like you believe like in like demigods, like, like Hercules, like kind of powerful. Mm -hmm. So you have to believe he's all powerful. And you also have to believe he's trustworthy because if he can lie to you, well, then how would you know? And, and, and when he says the Quran has been perfectly preserved, well, maybe he's lying. Um, so that's a serious problem. So if you have these two characteristics of God, he's all powerful and he's trustworthy, then it creates a problem because if God is the great, if God is, uh, if, if the Bible, as the Quran refers to it, was revealed by God, but became corrupted, only two possibilities, uh, uh, follow from that. Either God couldn't protect the Bible from corruption, or he wouldn't protect it from corruption. I've looked for a third and there's not a third option that I'm aware of. If he couldn't protect the Bible from corruption, then he's not all-powerful. And if he's not all-powerful, then he's not great. 
But every Muslim believes takbir. Once again, God is the greatest possible. Allahu Akbar, right? So it couldn't be that he couldn't protect it. So option B is what's left to you. He wouldn't protect it. The problem with that, and it's not like a problem of evil issue where it's like, why does God let bad things happen? Because this is his revelation. This is how we know who he is. And so what you have to believe is that God revealed himself through these books the only way we can really know without direct encounter with God who he is and what he wants. And he lets them fall into such blasphemous disrepair that millions of people go to their belief believing damnable lies about him, and it's his fault. Mm. So if he wouldn't protect it, why would you think he would protect the Quran? In other words, you have three books, um, the Taurat, the five the five books of Moses, the Zazabur, the Psalms of David, and the Injil, the Gospel of Jesus in Islamic thinking. And then you have the Quran. So out of the four books, three become corrupted. He's only batting a 250 average. Why would you put um, So that to me is an issue. If you're a Muslim, you have to contend with the fact that your God or your view of God is such that he's not trustworthy wow. uh, or he's not powerful. But as a Muslim, you believe he's all-powerful. And you believe he's trustworthy, which means that you believe that if the Bible was revealed and the Quran says it was, that he could and he would. And history shows he did preserve it. So you can't believe as a Muslim that the Bible's been changed. You just can't believe it. Uh, Joe, I want to bring you in, but I, I, I want to say one other thing. One of the ways I've kind of come at this is I've talked about what appears to me to be a a, a revelatory inconsistency in Islam that mm-hmm. so much of Islam depends upon the truth of the Hebrew Christian scriptures, mm-hmm. Abraham, Moses, all of these figures. And yet at the same time in which they're dependent upon the Judeo-Christian scriptures, they assert this claim that it's been corrupted, Right. this this inconsistency. Yeah. Joe, jump in here with a question or two. Yeah, a couple of questions, Abdu. Uh, one on practical outreach and a second one on how Christianity has been mischaracterized. Uh, let's say you live in a neighborhood and you have Muslims down the street or your son or daughter has classmates who are Muslim. There, there might be kind of an intimidation factor. It's like, I'm not sure what to do here. They they, they look funny. I'm not. How do I even say hello? <clears throat> what would be like a practical way <clears throat> to introduce yourself at least to somebody in your neighborhood or at school? Yeah, great question, Joe. Um, so let me just say this, uh, and hopefully this will uh, uh, assuage the fears or the anxieties. Muslims around the world, uh, Arabs in particular, but all Muslims from all different stripes, hospitality is a cardinal virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a cultural thing, but it's also a religious thing. So they want to welcome you into their home. They want that. Um, if you ask a question uh, of them, especially about their faith, they will go on and on and on. Now, they might not necessarily welcome challenges to their faith uh, uh, up front, but they will welcome questions. So here's the thing. If you if there's a Muslim neighbor that you've been very standoffish with in terms of like reaching out, like maybe I'll offend them, maybe I'll say something wrong, maybe I'll go into a cultural blunder. They're not made of porcelain. They're fine. They they want to talk to you. They they come from cultures where neighborliness is considered a virtue, um, and they actually are mystified by the rampant individuality and the fact that the, we we don't go to the front porch, we go to the back deck now in in, in America. They're like, we're front porch people, you know, <laughs> come and hang out with us on the front porch. They want to talk with you, 
you bring them up. I'll tell you what, you want to, you want to, you want to shatter a stereotype. You want to like open up a conversation and form a real friendship that isn't even, even beyond the evangelistic. It's just a friendship. You walk over to your Muslim neighbor and you have some sweets or some, some kind of food because food is a universal solvent. You know, it, it dissolves all. <laughs> um, you bring over something and you say, this is halal, that there's no animal shortening in this. There's nothing I thought of you guys. This is halal. Um, I would love to have you over for coffee sometime, mm-hmm. or I'd love to come over and just hang out with you or spend some time in the front yard or whatever it is. You will win. You will win their hearts mm-hmm. fairly immediately because they do not expect Americans um, or non-Muslim Americans to be that hospitable. You will, wow. you will shatter some stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Barriers will be broken immediately. And you don't have to talk about Jesus for the first 10 encounters if you don't want to. If you want to, you can, because you can ask a question. And it's this, what do you think of Jesus? They have an opinion and they'll share it with you. And it won't be an argument necessarily. It'll be, it might become one, but also don't worry about it. Um, if Muslims start to have a quote unquote argument with you, it's not because they're angry. It's because they like to talk about religion. Um, mm-hmm. So don't worry about that. But you be hospitable Um you will be shocked. I had a friend who walked into a restaurant one time, a Lebanese restaurant in the area where we live. And he, well, he asked me a question. He's like, so how do I get in with these guys? I said, you do one thing. You walk in, because he's a regular there. You walk in and you say marhaba. Marhaba means hello in Arabic. That's all it means. It's just hello. You say marhaba. And you try with the accent. Just even try. You don't have to get it right. Just try it. He says, and I bet you, you get free food out of it. And they brought, <laughs> they, 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 they brought some baklava um, right after. And they love that guy because he just tried. Just yeah. a little something. A little something goes a long way. Yeah. That's and, yeah. yeah. And you got a second question. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Great advice. Thank you for that. Uh, Ken spends a lot of time in the podcast dealing with mischaracterizations of Christianity. But I want to ask you the question. I think it's subject of your new book. How is Christianity mischaracterized in the marketplace of ideas, and what can we do about it? Well, uh, yeah, um, and you're talking generally speaking, right, Joe? Not just with Muslims, but just generally speaking? Gen- generally speaking. Um, uh, in fact, the, the most recent book I wrote, um, More Than a White Man's Religion, is actually an attempt to answer at least part of the question uh, of the challenge of the Christian faith right now, which is, as I've gone to universities around the world, um, and uh, in the past few years, especially with polarization, with politicization of religious belief and all this stuff, what I've noticed is the questions are shifting on their primacy. So people are still asking questions like science and faith. Of course, they're asking those questions. They're asking questions on, you know, did Jesus really rise from the dead historically? Did Luke get it right when he said Lysanias was Tetrarch of Abilene? You know, uh, uh, they still ask those questions but they're not the primary questions. The primary questions are not, is this fact true? Do we have evidence for David? Has the Bible been changed? Those are secondary questions now. The primary questions now are, isn't the Bible racist? Isn't the Bible sexist? Isn't the Bible something, something aphobic? You know, whether it's transphobic or homophobic or whatever it might be. Um, And so there is a perception that Christianity, Christianity is in fact a religion concocted by and used by white males to control people of color and women, um, among others. So this is the perception right now. It's not, they're not asking, is the Bible true? They're asking, is the Bible moral? And I think they're asking, is the Bible true secondarily? But the primary question is the Bible moral. And so I think this misconception has to be addressed because 
that we're in a culture right now that doesn't ask propositional truth claims uh, or more historical or scientific truth claims first. They ask moral truth claims, which are propositional, but they ask those first. Yeah. And we have to we have to answer the questions culture is actually asking. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. That's interesting because uh, 35, 40 years ago, I worked with Walter Martin at the Christian Research Institute. Mm -hmm. When I would go to the colleges, they were almost exclusively what I would call truth questions. Yeah. Does God exist? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Uh, is Jesus the son of God? Moving forward, about 15 years ago, working here at RTB, going to the university, I noticed the questions changed. Mm -hmm. Still get truth questions, yeah. but they would ask the very thing you're asking. They would say, has Christianity been good for racial minorities? Mm -hmm. Has it been good for women? What about the Canaanites? Is is God good? Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of shifted. Mm -hmm. Here's my question for you. Mm -hmm. Christians for centuries have talked about truth, goodness, and beauty, these yeah. transcendentals. Mm -hmm. I love to talk about those things, but we now have a culture that truth and goodness is largely seen in relativistic terms. Yeah. What do you think of the idea of beauty as an argument for God? Mm -hmm. Is it possible that beauty is an underutilized argument from God? Mm -hmm. And and my secular friends, they won't go to church with me. Mm -hmm. But if I want to go to an art library or something, they're all over oh, that. Yeah. Could we introduce beauty and then maybe circle back to truth and goodness? What are, what, what are some of your thoughts? Oh, I think that this is a, a tremendous way to have a, to have an inroad. I think you're right. Uh, so if I were to say reason why the things have shifted is because what the culture is looking for, what, what postmodernism, which I think we're no longer postmodern, I think we're post-truth, but postmodernism looks a lot like post-truth. What postmodernism gave us as a positive was the idea of narrative and story and conversation as methods to meaning. Um, now, with the relativism, we essentially get we don't get there. So it's, it basically shot itself in the foot on the way on on, on its own path. It, so it, yeah. uh, that's a that's a big problem. But the idea of narrative, when you think about what pervades culture right now, so you have something that will change the culture's perception on sexuality and gender in a flash, where you can have a perception of things, and the polls all say Americans, for example, view sexuality one way. And then something happens where there's a narrative attached, a story, and that pulls on the heartstrings, it tugs at something, and then you can have almost a culture-wide shift, almost completely the opposite way. It goes to show you that narrative really, really matters to people. Well, the Bible's narrative, mm -hmm. and it's beautiful narrative. And I was thinking about this in terms of hints of the sublime, and I thought about a book I might be writing about this, about the way in which the Bible can be proven to be true, not just because of the propositional issues and the corroboration or the... Uh, correspondence to reality, but correspondence to actual beauty and the beautiful way in which it expresses itself. I think these are ways in which we can actually begin to um, appeal to the heart as a way to get to the mind or as you put the two together. I really think this is true. I think when we look at visual beauty, uh, a good friend of mine who I think that is a friend of RTVs as well, Zandra Carroll, mm -hmm. um, she and Ken Boa have the a new thing that just opened up called the Museum of Creative Beauty. Mm -hmm. It's an online experience where it does actually try to appeal to beauty as an apologetic for the gospel, which I think is a tremendous way to do it. Um, and this goes back to what I was saying before. When I explained, for example, the Trinity in terms of this coherent way it puts together. So you have this 
logical stuff and theological stuff, but it says something about your place. That beauty translates to people um, in a way that opens them up. So here, you know, RTB, we talk about the the amazing, I, I love Hugh's stuff on the James Webb telescope mm -hmm. and the images we're seeing. They're awe-inspiring. Yeah. That awe comes from a place where we recognize something, not just, you know, like that's big and it's complex. It's not like a, a completely rational thing. You know, yeah. there's something yeah. uh, existential and transcendental about it. Um, so I think that that points to God. Uh, but even the way the Bible tells its stories, it's beautiful stories. If you'll indulge me for a minute, I'll just give you an example. I was talking yeah. with some people about this yesterday. You look at a parable like the parable of the generous employer, you know, and, and uh, Christians will know the story, but just for context, you have this parable where Jesus is talking about God's grace and the way in which the first shall be last and the last shall be first and all this. And so the parable goes like this. He's talking about God, but he uses a, a figure who is a master of a vineyard, a guy who owns a vineyard. And he's the God in the story. And the master of the vineyard goes out to hire daily, to hire day laborers to work in his vineyard. And there's guys waiting around to be hired. Now, Typical back then and typical today, a day laborer will wait in the morning to get hired. And if he doesn't get hired, that's it. It's done because you hire the drywall installers or whatever in the morning. And then after that, it's done. So he hires some guys and he says, they say, okay, we'll work with you. Um, but and, and they negotiate for a wage and it's a dollar or a denarius, right? So one denarius for a day's work and that's considered a fair wage. Go, go work in my field. So they go. Well, the master of the vineyard comes back a second time. And by the by the, by the, by this time, guys should be gone. They should be done. Um uh, but they're there. And he says, okay, I hire you, you, and you. And he gives them a denarius for the day's work. A third time, a fourth time, a fifth time. And now there's only one hour of work left to go in the whole day. And he says, I'll give you a denarius if you work in my field for just an hour. End of the day happens. And he says to the foreman, I want you to pay the last guys first so the first guys see it. I want them to see it. And the first guys are mad. They're like, we worked all day and you gave us the same wage you gave these guys a uh, dollar for. And of course, we're talking about God's grace and his sovereignty and all these things. And so Jesus makes the point that the first shall be last and the last shall be first and all this stuff. I remember when a Christian showed me this when I wasn't a Christian. And I asked this Christian, I said, did you read this before you showed this to me? <laughs> um, because I'm not sure you understand this story. This is terrible. <laughs> this is the God you want me to believe in. And then I got to tell you, my Middle Eastern mindset kicked right in. And I said, oh my goodness, this is an honor and shame story. Mm. So in the Middle East, it's an honor and shame society where morality is enforced by means of honor and shame. And the worst shame, one of the worst shames you can have is to go home and not be able to take care of your family. Mm. So what Jesus does in this parable is he tells a story about a God who goes and these guys hold out hope that they will last all day if they have to, and they don't want to go home in shame. And the master of the vineyard who is God credits their faith that someone will honor them as if it was work. Mm. And that harkens all the way back to Abraham. So you see this parable and the Abrahamic statement where he believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. You see this thread that's woven throughout and you're thinking only the God of language, only the one who Augustine said, without whom all human eloquence is mute. Mm. Only that one can weave this together in this amazing way where he's speaking to an honor and shame culture and he speaks Easternly to Eastern people yeah. and then says that's credited as righteousness. And so there's an honor shame to it. But then there's a philosophical issue. You know, every university I've ever gone to, um, I wouldn't say every single time, but most times someone, whether it's a Christian or an atheist, will ask me about Christian theism and its coherence. How can God judge us for things that he makes us do? 
um, you know, sovereignty and free will. And then you see the end of the parable. Same parable where um, the first guys get upset. They're like, you paid us the same amount you paid the guys who worked for an hour. And what is the master's response? He says, friend, can't I do with my money what I want? God's sovereignty. And didn't you agree to a denarius? Human free will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All of this stuff in the same story. This is the beauty, I think, that you're 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 talking about, Ken, amongst many other things. The beauty of the scriptures, it tells a better narrative than your molecules in motion, or you can create reality as you want, because we're ultimately disappointed by these things. Yeah. But this beauty of scripture, what compares? I, I have a hard time believing that that was a story concocted by a handful of fishermen and some shepherds. <laughs> well said. Mm-hmm. I, I want to tackle, Joe, one more topic before we close the show. Um, Abdul, it seems to me when we look at the world in which we're living right now, yeah. I mean, I go back and I, I think to myself, uh, this idea that uh, there, you know, we should look at people in terms of oppressors and oppressed, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, instead of truth, goodness, and beauty, it's race, gender, and class. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I've tried to convey to people is that philosophical ideas really matter. Mm-hmm. You know, the the ideas from people like Derrida and Foucault, mm-hmm. from Marx, from Nietzsche, have kind of sprinkled down into the social sciences, into the humanities, uh, into literature, now even into science and mathematics. Yeah, the hard sciences. The hard uh, yeah, sciences. Absolutely. So talk to us a little bit about how how serious is these issues that we're dealing with today. Yeah. Some have proposed that, you know, the that in some respects, kind of wokeism is a new religion. The original sin is racism. Mm-hmm. The liturgy, you have to confess to people your sin is that I, you know, your whiteness, if you will. Yeah. But there doesn't seem to be any forgiveness in this yeah. new religion. Yeah, I know you're interested in this topic. Tell yeah. us, tell us some of your thoughts. Yeah, and so I wrote about this in more than a white man's religion, um, and I spent, um, I rewrote the section I wrote on critical theory um, about 19 times, and I wow. gave it to, and it's not a long section, by the way. Um, a couple of things about this is that um, critical race theory, for example, is a child of critical theory, which is a, more of a general thing, and Derrida, Foucault, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it sees everything in terms of this dichotomy of humanity, oppressor and oppressed. And you apply that you know, intersectionally to uh, sexuality, to race, to gender, to transgender and all this stuff. Um, I think there's a fundamental issue here is that, one, there's some good in in the recognition that oppression is a real thing. The Bible is practically obsessed with the idea of liberty uh, from oppressors. Um but it doesn't leave us in a world of strict dichotomies like this, where everything is a function of this. What it actually does, where critical theory falls short, the Bible actually goes goes further. And this is an ironic thing. Critical theory's flaw is not that it sees just everything in terms of black and white oppressor or oppressed kind of narratives um, and haves and haves nots, but that it sees it doesn't see it far enough in terms of the human condition. Um, where it sees it as systems issues. You know, I read Ibram X. Kendi's um, How to Be an Anti-Racist and all this. And what was a marked issue for me was the way in which he refused to call people racist and called systems and ideas and policies racist. Um, And he has a resistance. He has a whole chapter called Failure, 
where he says the appeal to the human heart fails because it's not the heart that needs to be changed. It's the policies that need to be changed yeah. as if people don't actually make these policies. They, 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 they sort of pop into like a, like a quantum fluctuation of policy or something like that. Um, uh, and that, that's, which is odd to me. So I think the benefit of these ideas, especially when it comes to race, is it recognizes race as a real, as, as a, sorry, it recognizes race as a social construct, which the Bible would actually say, I think is true as well. Race is a social construct. Ethnicity is a real thing. Race is a construct. Um, but it, it wants to give people a sense of um, dignity in an identity that's real. Ethnicity is a real, a real thing. Where the Bible will go further, though, is say that ethnicity isn't everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where the fatal flaw lies, is that when you do it on race, gender, and class, you make those definitional as opposed to descriptive. So when I look at Jesus's encounters with the woman at the well, a Samaritan, mm-hmm. ethnicity mattered, religion mattered, gender mattered in, the, in that conversation, but they weren't definitional. So you look at her, the Canaanite woman, you look at the Roman soldiers he's encountering, all these things. What you see throughout the entire Bible is that God is saying that ethnicity and gender are expressions of who you are, but the Imago Dei is the definition of what you are. And critical theory will never be a good enough tool if it ignores that reality and simply describes circumstances as definitional. It's very existential, you know, Um, and it falls short for the same reason that existentialism falls short. Um, And it'll never be a solution because it doesn't actually recognize the problem. Um, Where the Bible says the problem is the human heart and the human condition and the failure to recognize yourself or others as made in God's image. And so we see gender and ethnicity as valuable expressions of who we are, but God's image as definitions of what we are. I think that's the big issue. And just to put a, 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 a cap on that, you look at the way the scriptures, Old Testament and New, when God judges people, he doesn't judge them based on their tribe. It looks like it. But what does he do? He judges them based on their actions. So he judges the Canaanites and he judges the other ites uh, in the Old Testament based on what it is they do. And then how I know it's not race-based or ethnicity-based is because he judges Israel for the exact same things, using those people as instruments of judgment. So it's not not race, it's not ethnicity-based, it's character-based. So to quote Martin Luther King, God judges people not on the color of their skin, but the content of their character. He did not pull that out of nowhere. He yeah. got that from a biblical narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, his, you know, his letter from the, uh, what was it? The Birmingham uh, jail. Birmingham jail. He quotes Augustine, Aquinas, yeah. scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, Abdu, tell our listeners some of the books you've written. Mm-hmm. How can they contact you? What are you going to be working on while you're here at RTB? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it's a tremendous blessing to be here. I just love my time here with you guys. Um, so um, they can go to embracethetruth.org. That's our website. Uh, we have a YouTube channel as well. If you go to youtube.com slash official, you'll see our playlists. We have a podcast called All Rise. Um, uh, a couple other things as well. Uh, some channels you can check out there. Um, uh, so I've written I've written f- uh, several several books. Uh, Apocalypse Later, which is about the how do you can use the conflict in the Middle East to actually preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, then my second one is Grand Central Question. We talked about some of the some of the material from that, yeah. which takes a look at 
the central questions of secular humanism, pantheism, and Islam, and how the gospel affirms the question, but says we offer a better answer. So it uh, leads people down a what it's more that Pascal make them wish it were true kind of a thing. Yeah. So that's grand central question. My third book is Saving Truth, and it's about the post-truth culture and um, uh, how we're not really postmodern anymore. We're more post-truth, and what to do about that um, from a perspective of of, a, of of someone who loves truth and wants to make it a, a part of the conversation again. And then my most recent one, which is more than a white man's religion, mm-hmm. um, why the gospel's never been male-centered, um, n- never been merely white, male-centered, or just another religion. Um, and, uh, so those are out and they can go to Amazon or wherever, wherever you could find books. Um, <laughs> you can, you can find those as well. So, and while what I'm working on here is, um, I'll be uh, doing a couple things on, um, uh, what it means to follow the science and how in yeah. a post-truth culture following the science doesn't always mean what we think it means. It's very, um, a very misused phrase or misunderstood phrase or a convenient phrase, uh, filming a couple other things as well. I'll be doing something on artificial intelligence, which I have an intense interest in. Mm-hmm. Um, I really do think artificial intelligence is something we have to come to grips with because it's not going anywhere other than more prevalent. Yeah. And as Christians, we have to re- wrestle with the implications of it. So those are some of the things I'll be working on here while uh, I'm at RTV. It's been our pleasure to have you. Thank you for being a visiting scholar. Joe, we, we uh, continue to get great uh, scholars with warm hearts, and it's a, it's our pleasure. Indeed. This has been a fascinating discussion. I've learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners have as well. Our guest, visiting scholar, Abdu Murray, president of Embrace the Truth. That's embracethetruth.org. Be sure to check it out. That's going to wrap it up for this podcast. Let us know your comments and questions. You can reach out to Ken via Twitter. That's at RTB underscore case samples. And we'll be glad to read your comment or your question here. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples and Abdu Murray, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.